In this podcast, we discuss chronic illness, injury, medical procedures, bodily functions, mental health, trauma, grief, crime scenes, violence, and dead bodies. And we cuss. A lot. If any of these things concern you, don't worry, they concern us too. But we can't opt out. Discretion is advised. Hitting the microphone is much easier for me than uh, clapping, because my hands don't work. Hips don't lie, hands don't work. Yeah. Well. <laughs> my eyes don't work, so. You're joining your own club? That That's me, joining the club. Cool. Cool, cool, cool. Yep, you got it. Hi, welcome to the Invisibles podcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Rebel. Hello, Rebel. What are we doing today? We are doing the second and final part, the Brian Daniels case, which is a wild one. In our last episode, we talked about uh, the history of Brian Daniels' upbringing and his struggle with his mental health, and also his uh, debilitating burn injuries from the fire that he was trapped in, from which he won a $5 million settlement. Which was not nearly enough. Well, I was just going to say, we also heard from someone who was a junior Mensa member. Because remember, we, we asked about it. Mm-hmm. So uh, a listener was a junior Mensa member and they did not sit in rooms with leather couches and play chess oh was there any kind of like weird hat or handshake no hat and no handshake it was mostly they would get together they would play some games but like settlers of Catan no probably I'm no (laughs) ah damn (laughs) (laughs) sorry to disappoint my friend said that there were like speakers a lot of the time so people who were like actual adult Mensa members would come in and give talk Hmm. about what smart things you know things that people who have a hundred and forty eight plus IQ would think about and there's no Mm. like invitation process because that is something that you posited in the last episode it's just like you have to have a certain iq to join Mm -hmm. have a certain iq number to join do they read a lot of Ayn Rand? I didn't ask. But it's 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 a lot you know. It seems to me to be a lot more academic, you know. Mm. Like debate team on steroids. Okay. Well, that's good for that 
qualification. I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, people people did let us know. I knew the internet would let us know. <laughs> so we when we left off with Brian, he his mother had just passed away and um we were talking about how that meant that he would have to find a new caregiver. And that he did actually require daily help because he is, his hands were horribly scarred and um, he couldn't quite hold things properly. So he had bought himself a mansion. Yeah. It was quite, I mean, quite a house, to be honest. He had the mansion prior to his mother dying, correct? Yeah. He, he bought it for the two of them to live in and then she passed away about a year and some after. After uh, he had purchased the house. And so he was looking for new caregivers, and that was a, an apparently difficult process for him. Understandable. To perspective one of his previous caretakers who was really only with him for a little while said that while he was um, taking her around the house on a tour showing off his mother's belongings and you know talking about her she asked him about his um, antiques and his other artifacts, and it was at this point that Brian told her that he had had previous caretakers who had stolen valuable items from him. His previous caretakers, who was really only with him for a little while, said that while he was taking her around the house on a tour, showing off his mother's belongings and, you know, talking about her, she asked him about his um, antiques and his other artifacts, and it was at this point that Brian told her that he had had previous caretakers who had stolen valuable items from him. Yes. Yeah, so I think his loneliness, his isolation combined with his need for care, and his money, and his mental illness kind of made him a perfect target for evil sons of bitches. Okay. Yeah, I mean... Like I said before, the plot thickens. Whenever money's involved in a true crime case yeah. of any type. Well, and here's the other thing. And I don't know, I don't know where to stand on this. Right. And it's going to come into play in a minute here. Yes. I don't know what his sexuality was. And there's a reason I say it that way. I found no accounts from previous partners, no information from anyone who says that they were, you know, with him, no, ma no mentions of a wife, ex-wife, boyfriend, ex-husband, nothing, no mentions. Um, and I mean, this is Missouri, and no shade to Missouri, but shade to Missouri. Y'all don't talk about your gayness. Let's get into the real shit. Could come out. Uh-huh. 
Holy shit. Yeah, and so I don't know his sexual orientation, which is why I'm going to preface it by saying that because we're about to get into the real shit right here. On April 10th, 2013, Brian's boyfriend, James Thompson, arrived at his home to find the back door kicked in and Brian dead. Right. Yeah, and uh, I don't know precisely where he was in the house, but you'll see why I say that in a minute here. When detectives arrived at the scene, they found 23-year-old Thompson and his friend Christopher Hurt parked in the driveway sitting in Hurt's car. Thompson said that he'd come over to take care of Brian for the day and that he'd gotten no response at the door, and so he had gone around to the back door, which was up on top of this, like, raised porch adjacent to the garage. So you have to go up, like, a flight of stairs to get to the porch, and then there's, like, a, a glass door. Right. Um, and he said he found it forced opened. So they stood there and talked with him for about 90 minutes, right? Right. Thompson was asked where he had been the previous day, and he gave a few conflicting stories. He said that he had driven to Oklahoma to meet his lifelong friend, Casey Lewis, and also that he had been on the phone with Hurt at the time that the, pol uh, that the police speculated that Brian had been shot. Um, and Hurt went along with this and said, yeah, you know, we were on the phone for like 40 minutes at 8 o'clock. Right. Was giving the police some weird vibes. The ADT alarm wires had been cut and the batteries in the system had been taken out. The door was kicked in, but nothing was myth missing or disturbed. None of his antiquities seemed to be displaced. There were gold items that weren't missing. Right. Them, it looked as if someone had either purposely broken in to find Brian and murder him, or the scene had been staged afterwards to look like the home invasion had gone wrong. Because on the table, in plain view, were two critical documents. The first was a power of attorney written up for Brian, naming James Thompson as his legal caregiver. Now, in case you don't know, our friends who are listening, a power of attorney is basically a legal document that allows a person who's listed on the form to act on your behalf in a medical or financial situation to basically see to your needs. It has to be witnessed by non-family members and it has to be notarized by a notary public. It's a, an incredibly important document, uh, especially if you're taking care of somebody who um, has a cognitive issue like dementia or Alzheimer's, you need that power of attorney because you need to, it essentially allows you to take charge of their estate um, and to make choices on their behalf when, if and when they become incapacitated uh, and can't um, see to their own medical coverage. Right. So essentially, like, if you were in a car accident or something or, like, were completely unable and unresponsive, the person who has your power of attorney would um, decide whether or not you would be resuscitated or things like that. Now, this power of attorney was notarized in February. So remember, he was, this, this happened. And so the, the power of attorney had just been notarized in February, and it was witnessed by Christopher Hurt and his mother. And it was notarized by a man named Glenn Anderson. The second, important uh, the second important document was a will 
again notarized by Glenn Anderson with the same set of witnesses, leaving Brian Daniels' entire $5 million estate and all of his assets to his partner, James. Right. And these are just sitting there on a kitchen table. Like, they're just there on a desk, you know, whatever. They're just there. So, just just a little question. Were they trying to... Confusing, right? Because when when you think about if someone's preparing to die, right? They will, in some cases, you know, put those things out because they know they're going to kill themselves. Right. They'll put them where they can be found. Exactly. But, like, it's kind of counterintuitive, and maybe, and I'm sure you'll get into it, but, like, there, there's, there are ways to kill someone to make it look like a suicide, but you don't break in the door and shoot them three times. Because if you kill yourself once... No, the, the suicide was ruled out right away. Right. Yeah, suicide was ruled out right away because he was shot three times, and any one of the gunshots apparently would have killed him there. Right. So, right. clearly not a suicide. But it is really freaking suspicious, because who leaves their power of attorney and their will just sitting on a kitchen table? I'm sorry, if I have $5 million to my name, that shit's in a safe. Yeah, exactly. And why would I leave everything to this guy... That I've only known a couple of years. Yeah. By all accounts. I mean, his mom died in 2009, right? This is 2013. So, I mean, why would I leave everything to this guy and leave absolutely nothing to the nine brothers and sisters that he was apparently close to? Exactly. Like, why would that happen? That doesn't make any sense. And on top of this, the fact that that Hurt was a witness on both of them. Meanwhile, he's in the driveway when they find the guy's body. Right. And on top of that, Thompson and Hurt drove to the residence repeatedly during the crime scene processing to ask if they'd found the will and if he could take it. The fuck? Yeah. The answer is no. No, sir. You may not have the will. Nope. No, no, no. No, sir. No. Sit your ass down. Take many seats. And he did. So what I'm thinking at this point is that the will... And the power of attorney that were sitting on the table or whatever was like a forged document. Well, clearly you've seen too many datelines. You're just being silly. You're just being silly right now. Come on. I mean, I've, I've seen a lot. Did I jump the gun? Sorry. So, I mean, any detective who's worth their salt is, of course, going to investigate this fucker. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how stupid do you have to be? Why would you drive by the scene multiple times during the course of the crime scene investigation and ask, hey, did you find that will? Like, <laughs> I'm sorry. Right. <laughs> These people. It gets worse. And you're, you're a real dumb criminal. So detectives get a search warrant for both uh, Thompson's cars and his phone. Uh, and they uncover some interesting things. Now, I need to mention that Thompson owned a cab company at the time. What? So he had several vehicles. 
And um, so they, you know, they search his vehicles and his, yeah, he had several vehicles. So here's this motherfucker owns a cab company, okay? And he rolls up on the scene in his friend's car. So where's his car? Where are any of his cars? And that's going to be important. Cell phone records indicate that not only did no such phone call take place between Thompson and his buddy Christopher Hurt, his phone wasn't even in Oklahoma when he said it was. In fact, the records show that he went to Oklahoma earlier than he had said and that he was in Columbia at the exact time of the murder. So he was not on the phone with Christopher Hurt. He was not on his way to Oklahoma. He was in Columbia, chilling. And, I mean, how do, how do you not know in 2013 that they're going to look at your cell phone records? How do you not know that? I mean, look. I, I... As someone who lived in Missouri, it isn't far to drive to Oklahoma. Like, it's a bit of a drive. Yeah, it's like a couple hours from where they were, I think. But, like, if you're trying to purport that you were in Oklahoma, like, drive the fuck to Oklahoma. Yeah, and also, like, why wouldn't you think to buy a another cell phone or just, like, initiate a call and leave it running or whatever? Like, I don't understand how he could have thought that they wouldn't check... Like, clearly this guy is not watching Dateline. He's just not. He's just not. He's not a CSI fan. No, he's not. And it was on in 2000. Exactly. So I should mention that. No, go ahead. I mean, I, I don't know. But this is, this is the, like a hallmark in any true crime case, right? It's like they don't think about the most obvious thing. It gets worse. I, I say this, I feel like I say this every recording, but it gets worse. It gets worse. <laughs> but wait. So when they go to search his main vehicle, yeah, but wait, there's more. Yeah. Not only do you get this horribly botched murder, you also get this stupid fucking criminal. Um, when they ask to search his main vehicle, they find out that it's fill in the blank. Stolen. It's been stolen. Literally the day after the crime, it's been stolen. It was stolen. It was stolen. Officer, my car was stolen. That's why when I came to the scene, I was in my friend's car. Where is it? No one knows because it was stolen. Was it parked at the scene the night of Brian's death? No, it was parked in Thompson's driveway. No. <laughs> Did he? But here's the problem I have with that. He said he was on his way to Oklahoma and he kept with that story. So which fucking car did he drive to visit his friend Lewis? Right. Well, but he owns a cab company, right? Yeah. Sorry. Done check out, friend. So he has multiple vehicles. Were they all stolen? Right. But that's not what he said. So no, his cabs were in use by drivers. So. Oh, sure. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. So, of course, they suspect him. So they start, you know, poking around a bit. When when his housekeeper, when Brian's housekeeper was interviewed, uh, the police were surprised to hear that James. Sorry, let me rephrase this. Let me go back. Cut that. Edit it. Uh, when she was interviewed, Brian's housekeeper was surprised to hear 
that James was touting himself as Brian's lover since she'd not only never seen them interact romantically, but had never even heard Brian describe him as such. Not only that, but she also said there were numerous arguments between the two men and that Brian had called the police a number of times. She said that Christopher Hurt, who had apparently been coming around prior to Brian's murder, was a scary dude. And she kind of worried about how much access he had to the house. Right. So that's a bit of a different picture. Right. And so once they hear that, of course, the cops go and they start looking through their own records and they discover that in the past, Angela, you're going to you're going to you're going to climb up on the salt block with me. You're going to be up on the salt block. I mean, I've been on the salt block, but no, no, this is going to make you want to climb a little bit higher. We're going to need to get some extra salt bricks, pack them up. We're going to get there. Yeah. They discover that in the past 11 months, the Columbia PD had been called to Brian's home 17 times. Jesus fucking Christ. And in the last few encounters, Brian had accused Thompson of stealing things from him and had reported the specific items taken. He had a list. And apparently, not one fucking thing was done about it. For what? Why? Because during his police interviews, Thompson had taken the police aside and explained that he was Brian's caretaker, not his lover, his caretaker, and that the man was mentally ill and confused and schizophrenic, so apparently nothing was done about the thefts. Man, this is the blind woman looking for the caregiver. Anyway, I mean, I've been pissed off, but... In the most recent incident, like, I'm already pissed off. I'm already fucking mad. How do you... There's a guy who calls the cops, and he tells you, this motherfucker is stealing shit from me. Here's a list of the things stolen. And you listen to the dude... Who takes you aside and says, no, don't listen to him. He's, he's schizophrenic. He's mentally ill. I'm his caregiver. He acts like this. He's just confused. That shit makes me so mad. But that just speaks to the fact that law enforcement does not know how to deal with mentally ill people. Well, and they shouldn't have to. But what they should do is have a fucking doctor or somebody or a group of people, a team, that is called out to issues involving anybody. Exactly. That has a mental health history. Why is this not done? Why do they not have a a liaison team? Well, and here's the other thing. Like, called the police. So there has to be, you know... Well, and there has to be, like, tapes of his calls, right? So, like... Yeah. Can you not judge a person's... An inciting incident or a reason. Like, ability to function by the way that they talk? to a dispatcher i mean i know it's not the you would think it's not the it's not the primary thing well i mean it doesn't even matter it doesn't even matter you weren't called by this caregiver dude you were called guy and number one if he is having like a a psychological incident he should be taken to a hospital to be evaluated Yes, and also, right. how about this? Even if he is scattered or talking in a way that doesn't make sense or behaving in a way that indicates he's having some sort of mental health crisis, 
It doesn't matter. He gave you a fucking list. Exactly. All you have to do is go and investigate. Take that list. Go in his house. Are the objects in the house? No. Okay. Now go look for them. No. Where may they have gone? And and this becomes important in a little bit here. Yeah. I'm going to get to that. You'll see. It all ties together. I have erected another salt block and you're standing with me. No. Yeah. Climb up on it. Get up here because in the most recent incident, which occurred on March 1st, remember this guy was murdered in April. March 1st, 2013, so a little bit less than a month before he was killed, the police responded to an alarm call due to a faulty circuit breaker, it seemed. And when they reached the residence, they found Brian bleeding from a knife wound to the head. Seriously? A knife wound to the fucking head. And at this point, it was at this point that Thompson claimed to be Brian's lover for the first time when he'd never done so before. And he played it off as if they were having a lover's quarrel. And Brian again accused Thompson of theft and told the police that he was going to be getting his locks changed, which he did on March 5th. So I need to, I need, I need to say this shit. I need to say this shit. This is fucking awful. This is awful. If you turn up at the scene with a visibly disabled person in distress and the other party says that there is a mental illness involved, your basic fucking job exactly is to make sure that you hold the people first and ask questions later brian was bleeding from the head at a bare minimum they should have detained thompson for questioning for assault until it was sorted out that is fucking ridiculous i cannot i cannot uh, scream of rage i'm sorry primal scream of rage primal scream of rage so do you want me to talk a little bit about violence and schizophrenia? Or do you want to... Please. No, please. Get... So. Get just... Yeah. Again, from Inside Schizophrenia, the podcast, they say... So the, the question that I kind of put out into the universe is, are people with schizophrenia more likely to be a victim? Oh, sorry. So, this is... This is crucial, right? This is the critical thing that I just want to put out there. People with schizophrenia are more likely to be the victim of a crime. Rather than the aggressor? Rather than the aggressor. That's important because I think that the... Right. And I mean, this has to do with ableism, right? Ableists, people who are able-bodied see disabled people as being the other... And so they get scared. And so there's this tendency to represent the mentally ill as being more likely to be violent. Right. And so, so here's, here's the kicker. In the small percentage of cases where schizophrenic, a schizophrenic is violent, their schizophrenia is unmanaged, which means they're not on medication. Right. And, but it's a small percentage. Now, the insanity defense is used in 1% of U.S. cases and has a 26% success rate. 90% of those people are... That's really small. 90% of those are people... Right. ...that have already been diagnosed. Instead of state prison, they would go to a state mental hospital. Which is where they should be. Because, because if, their, if their situation was unmanaged, 
their violence could be due to being in a delusional state or something like that, in which case they are not culpable for their actions. Exactly. And so there's a there's a case example. James Holmes was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenic. So used the insanity defense and was found to be legally sane. Right. In this case, there were other factors going on behind the scenes in terms of life circumstances. So he was medically evaluated. Okay. Uh, to see if he was competent to stand trial and, and sane. And they found that there was no correlation between his paranoid schizophrenic diagnosis and the crime that he committed. I do not know. Well, what crime did he commit? Right. So, I mean, I could see that. I mean, a person who's managing their illness could potentially do something knowingly, you know? But, I mean, in the in this case with Brian, he's the one who's been stabbed. Well, that's what I'm saying. That's why I I told you all of that information is because the the main point regarding schizophrenia and violence yeah is that people who are schizophrenic are more likely to be the victim right of a violent crime versus being the aggressor right yeah and the the number of people who who quote unquote get off of a conviction based on schizophrenia is so infinitesimally small compared to the total number of cases even the total number of cases that are that are affirmative defenses, which is where they say, you know, I I wasn't legally culpable. I'm I'm insane. You know, the insanity defense, quote unquote. Right. Yeah. No, I hear I hear what you're saying. Well, and that's why I shared the the statistics on the insanity defense because, and they pointed this out in the uh, podcast that I listened to, right? Because people think, like the general public, able-bodied people think that people use the insanity defense like a lot. Yeah, no, it's a, I, I already knew that it was an incredibly small number. Yeah. People just think that that's like a, excuse the phrasing, but a get out of jail free card. Yeah. And I know it also doesn't succeed very often. So 30% of 1% is 26% of 1%. I was rounding up. Sure. Like we did with the 4.9 billion, you know, <laughs> 4.9 million dollars. I, I, I feel you. Anyway, 30% of 1%. Yes. That's very small. And that's for that. Those are the people that are successful because most of them have had 90% of that percent have had previous diagnoses is people who were have been previously diagnosed exactly which is like basically what you would would expect right like in the 10 percent i'm i'm guessing at this point but in the 10 percent perhaps it was someone who committed a violent crime right got it 
and was not diagnosed. Or they were, but the court thought that it didn't have anything to do with the crime they committed. Right. So, I mean, you roll up on the house. You're the cop. You roll up on the house. One guy's been stabbed. Yeah. Okay. Doesn't matter who the fuck he is or what his deal is. He's bleeding from the head. Right. And he tells you that the person who stabbed him. Yeah. Stole shit from him. I don't give a fuck if the guy is mentally ill. I don't give a fuck if he's a 90-year-old quadriplegic. Right. What the fuck are you doing not taking the other guy in for assault? Yeah. It's assault. You don't get to decide if it was assault or not. Exactly. It's assault. And, and, And if the guy wants to push it and say, no, it wasn't, motherfucker, you take him to court. It's the jury that decides whether or not it was assault. Yeah. So Brian's bleeding from the head. I mean, I know he has to press charges if it's assault. And maybe he said he wasn't going to. But if he said, get this motherfucker out of my house and I'm changing the fucking locks. Come on. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's where because here's the thing. You know, it is very easy for a person with any mental health, uh, mental illness. To be manipulated by people that they think they trust, right? And so, just for argument's sake, let's say that, you know, Brian was, like, incoherent babbling or whatever. Mm-hmm. But, like, he was stabbed in the head. And he's telling you that this guy did it and... Mm-hmm. He's going the further step of saying that he's changing the locks on his house. Like, does that not turn on some internal alarm system that says like? Well, I think it's a double. I think it's a double whammy. The cops were told this is a gay lover spat and suggested maybe the Columbia, Missouri right. Police Department isn't sensitivity trained in LGBTQ matters. Right. And that the potentially, allegedly, hyper-masculine police force might uh, have shied away from getting involved in that kind of a, um, an abuse situation. Which, let's be clear, there's an abnormally high amount right. so, of, of partner abuse and domestic violence in the LGBTQ community. Yeah. And because it's not a man and a woman... Mm-hmm. I'm just going to go out on a little bit of a limb. But because it's not a man and a woman, like, here's the thing. There's no, there's no biologically predetermined aggressor. Exactly. And so it's like, if I am in a relationship with a woman and we get into it and become physically, like in California, it's a little bit, and in the area that I live in, it's a little bit different, right? But, like, in the Midwest a few years ago, yeah, I can imagine that that, because they always take the guy to jail. I mean, always is a, they often take the man to jail. They often take the the man to jail. But if the woman, if the man is like, well, she also abused me, they take her to jail, too. They do now. Yeah. Now. Yeah. Sorry. 
Yeah, you just, you, all you have to do is detain. Because the thing is, you don't have to necessarily arrest them. You detain them. I mean, jurisdictions are different, but I'm pretty sure you have, if you suspect them of, of assault, you can detain them for at least 24 hours, I would think, while you try and figure out whether or not the person's going to press charges or not. Right, exactly. Well, yeah, and you can, I believe that you can legally handcuff someone while detaining them so that they don't walk off or whatever. Yeah. So, and here's the thing. All they had to do was take the list that Brian gave them from the previous incidents and investigate it. And they don't do that till after he's murdered. I mean, look. Guess what they figure out, though? It gets, I'm, I'm telling you, man, you're going to be so mad. I'm already mad. I know, but it's, it's, it gets worse. And then there's more. So the cops start asking around at local pawn shops. Oh, shit. And they discover that, yes, indeed, Thompson had pawned all of the items that Brian had reported stolen in a police report. Reported on a police report. Not just, you know, I think you might have taken my iPod. No, it's not that. Motherfucker. He wrote it up in a list on a police report specifically, and all of those items were discovered at pawn shops, and they totaled some $18,258. Wait. 18000 Say that number again real slow. $258, which by my count in the state of Missouri is a felony. Uh-huh. That's a felony. Right. So, if they had arrested this fucker... If they had done... Yeah. When he stabbed... Yes. Brian in the head... If they had just taken him seriously, listened to him the first time he reported the item stolen, which was incidents ago. This was three or four incidents back. Right. If they had listened to him, taken him seriously despite his mental illness, and listened to him, and done the investigation needed, they could have arrested Christopher, or excuse me, they could have arrested for a felony. Right. He would not be on the street. He would not be around in February to get a power of attorney or a will. Yeah. Um, and he would certainly not have been around in April to find the guy's body. Right. So, okay, they're suspicious, you know, because here this guy has... Yeah. Well, and I'm kind of wondering if the power of attorney of attorney and the will were sitting on the table in the first incident. Well, gee, you may have uh, seen far too many datelines. Angela, excuse me, <laughs> Rebel, Rebel, <laughs> how many datelines have you watched? All of them, plus 48 hours. All of them. And I mean, I know you're like me. You put, you put <laughs> Unsolved Mysteries on in the background whenever you're home. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm still trying to figure out that that dead horse situation. You know what? I feel you. <laughs> the lady, no, the lady that got killed on a horse riding trip. That's an unsolved mystery. Oh, you're t oh, that did get solved actually. No, I know it did. But I'm still like Oh, you're trying to get through that episode? <laughs> no, I'm I'm like what? What person 
is like, oh, she hit her head riding a horse. Is she an experienced rider? They they have horses. Yeah, she was. He said she was thrown from the horse. Right, but they have. He said that she'd been thrown from the horse when the horse got spooked and that she'd fallen literally. And what was so funny about that case was that the cop that was investigating it said there was one rock within 50 yards. There was one single rock and she managed to fall off of a horse and hit her head on it. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was it was a little too perfect. But uh, this case, not perfect. Anyway, I've I've watched a lot of Dateline, a lot of true crime memories. You're like me. You watch the mystery show, right? You're 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 sitting there watching. Um, yeah, exactly. And you're like, bitch, I already know the answer. Come on. It was the housekeeper's daughter. Shut the fuck up. Exactly. Yeah, I'm there. I'm there with you. So you're you're on point because, uh, yeah, no, you're good. You're, you'll find out. So the cops go to Glenn Anderson. That was the guy that notarized both the power of attorney and the will. And they lean on him pretty hard. Right. And he, it was, it, it was like a six-hour interrogation. Finally, he breaks down and he starts talking about conspiracy. He claims that his friend Thompson had come to him with a scheme to inherit Brian's estate. Because, you know, it wasn't enough to rob him anymore, you know, since he'd uh, changed the locks and all of that. So that's why the door was kicked in. And reported, shh. (laughs) (laughs) I need Keith Morrison to lean and look at you. I'm Keith Morrison, and this is Dateline. So he asked Anderson to... He asked Anderson to purchase a notary stamp for the sole purposes of creating and forging this power of attorney and the living will. And uh, when he asked how he was planning to kill Brian, Thompson told Anderson that he was, quote, hiring a gangster to do it and that the payment would be $10,000, a new gun, and a beat-up Pontiac. Because, you know, that's what I want if I kill someone. So this is this is one of those things that's like the differences in payments for for like murder for hire situation for assassinations. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You're getting his entire estate, which is all of the antiquities and things, the house, the everything, the annuity payment. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. And this dude is going to forge a document for $10,000, a gun, and a beat-up Pontiac? No, that was the killer. The killer, the shooter, was going to get $10,000, a new gun, and a beat-up Pontiac. The guy that, that forged the documents, we don't know how much he was supposed to get. He didn't say, or at least I couldn't find it. That's still low. And But I'm sorry. What What gangster... Here's the thing. The new gun wasn't even the gun that was supposed to be used to kill the guy. Like, I thought reading this the first time, I'm like, oh, so he gave him 10 grand, a gun to do the crime with, and a car to get away in. Sure. No, that was, that was actually just the payment that was decided upon before the crime. Because the gun that he was given was not the gun he used to kill Brian. And the Pontiac wasn't even new. So. But did he hire a hitman? But remember... Did he just? But remember, remember that when he rolled up on the scene, he was driving with his bre- his uh, his best friend Christopher Hart. Yeah. 
Yeah, because his car got stolen? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. So all this information leads the police to immediately issue arresting warrants for Thompson, for first-degree murder and conspiracy, for Christopher Hurt, right, for obstruction of justice because he lied about the alibi and things like that, and for Christopher Hurt's mother right, for participating in the fraud and also for assaulting an officer whom she hit in the face whilst being arrested. <laughs> and of course... <laughs> what? <laughs> So they, they went to her house. They were like, we're arresting you for participating in the fraud. She's like, no, you're not. And hit the cop in the face. No, you're not. <laughs> I'm assuming that these people are white. Yes. Oh, yes. They're so Caucasian. I was going to say the caucasity of slapping a police officer that's come to arrest you in the face. Yes. Would never be tolerated. And, of course, they arrested Anderson, but he flipped state's evidence, so he didn't get very long at all. I think he got, I, I talk about it later what he got. But so they then issued a bolo or be on the lookout for Thompson's missing Pontiac, which would get them their final conspirator. So remember when I told you that Thompson had given had given. Right. Had given conflicting alibis and had said that he had gone over to Oklahoma to visit. Okay, so a few days after Thompson's arrest, Oklahoma troopers found the missing car, which was driving suspiciously as it was leaving a gun sale. I am not. And it... You're kidding me. No, they wouldn't. It's so weird. And, and so, so he's driving a stolen vehicle, leaving a gun sale. The troopers pick him up, and he leads them on a high-speed car chase. You couldn't write this shit. No one would believe it. So who is in a beat-up Pontiac? In a beat-up Pontiac? <laughs> leaving a gun sale. So the driver was one, Casey Lewis, who is, of course, immediately questioned regarding the murder of Brian Daniels. And according to him, his friend, Thompson, had come the day before to pick him up. So the day before the murder... Not the day of the murder, like he had told the cops, but the day before the murder, Thompson came to pick him up for a little fun get-together in Columbia, and he claimed he had nothing to do with the murder, and that James must have done it alone, and that he had left Columbia at midnight in the Pontiac, which had been given to him by Thompson, his lifelong best friend. That's his story. He came over the day before, we played Pinochle, we had a couple beers. At midnight, I took his car and I left. The car that he then reported. I'm like, okay, first of all, there's so many things wrong with this. Why the fuck would you report your car stolen? Because the cops are going to be looking for it. It's like, it's like he wanted Casey Lewis to get caught. And he wanted Casey Lewis to go down as the fall guy. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put this out here. There was one person of color in this entire conspiracy. Right. Which person do you think was the person of color? It was Casey Lewis, who is a Native American. Yeah, he's a Shawnee tribe member. And uh, yeah, so I think Thompson seriously wanted Casey Lewis to get caught, and he thought nobody would believe him. He thought that that would take the heat off of him, right? Because if the shooter's caught... I'm going to go out on a limb and say it was Casey Lewis. So he turns to... Casey Lewis, he says, no, I'll pay you 10 grand. I'll give you a gun. I'll give you a car. Naturally. 
You do the thing, you leave. And then as soon as the guy's out the door, he calls the car and stolen. I'm thinking that that was intentional. Dumbest criminal ever. Yeah, so the cell phones, the, bleh, the cell phone records, of course, conflict with this, this story that Casey Lewis has given. And they show that Casey actually left Columbia at 4 a.m., so not midnight. When confronted with this information, Casey Lewis reportedly jokes with the police that they had done some damn fine detective work. He wins the lottery for dumbest. You caught me. So they search his car and they find a loose gun clip for the same caliber weapon that was used to kill Brian. And it was missing three bullets. Of course. In his aunt's house, where Lewis had been living, they find a forty-four caliber, which they believed was the gun that had been given as payment, and which Lewis had apparently been attempting to find a buyer for at the gun sale. <laughs> Congratulations, guys. You figured me out. <laughs> These are the worst criminals ever. Which is good. It's good. No. Again. What? <laughs> I mean, not only have they never watched a Dateline, but they've never watched any type of crime, even a fictional crime type show. No. And Casey Lewis, who was supposedly a gangster, I'm sorry, I don't buy it. I call bullshit. So, like I said before, Glenn Anderson uh, flips, and so does Christopher Hurt. They both plead guilty to their parts in the conspiracy and later testify against Thompson and Lewis. Hurt got five years probation and, two, uh, and 200 hours of community service so as to avoid having a felony conviction on his record. Seriously? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Anderson, I think, got probation. I can't remember what he got, but it wasn't very large. It was like a couple years, and then he, he got probation. At Thompson's arraignment, he was given a $2 million cash bond only. Yeah. So that's totes of probes, in my opinion. Because I think to bond out, I think you have to pay 10%. That's a lot of money. And he would only be able to do that in cash. Yeah. So unless he's got a couple <laughs> hundred grand lying around. Nope. Yeah. So during Thompson's trial, the DA lays out a pretty convincing case. Yeah. After first weaseling his way into Brian's friend group, meeting him at one of his small, you know, dinner parties, Thompson had agreed to take care of Brian off and on, but it went sour when Brian caught him stealing. And when the police either didn't act or weren't able to pick apart the situation or understand how Brian had been victimized, Brian changed his locks and kicked Thompson out of his life. Right. It was then that Thompson and his friends get together and forge this, this uh, power of attorney and the will. Right. And uh, some of Thompson's friends come to the stand and claim that Thompson had been planning this for some time and had even attempted to shoot Brian himself, but couldn't get up the nerve. The DA pointed out that Thompson had Googled how to disable an alarm system and also the effects of cyanide. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. to be clear, 
we have a forged power of attorney and will. Mm-hmm. We have mm-hmm. a hitman getting paid really low wages for a murder. We have family connection because the mom was in on it. Yep. And now we're injecting poisoning into the plot? Yeah. So the prosecutor said this to him. Said, did you Google right. cyanide, right? And, and Thompson's response was, did he die of cyanide? Like a little fucking asshole joking around. I mean, oh. Did he die of that? No. So, because, you know, murderers don't do research and try to find different ways to kill people. That, that couldn't be. This reminds me of the Vallow Daybell case in so many ways. Yeah. Yeah. So the prosecution basically laid out that on April 8th, Thompson had driven to Oklahoma to get his friend Casey Lewis, promising him the money, the card, the two guns, uh, one for the crime and one for payment. Um, he then drove Lewis to Brian's house. The two men disabled the alarm um, and kicked in the back door, then hunted Brian down in his own home and shot him three times. He then gave the weapon and the car to Lewis, who then fled back to Oklahoma. And when Thompson realized that he might be a suspect, he called the car in as being stolen. That's the, the theory of the crime. But Thompson disputes all of this. He claims, yeah, 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 yeah. He claims that, that the two of them had been in a romantic relationship for three years. Right. Which, of course, isn't supported by the timeline at all. Of course he does. And, you know, any of Brian's friends. He says, he says that Brian was, quote, unbalanced and dangerous and on drugs and frequently would solicit online male sex workers. Right. Yeah, because of course he fucking said that. Uh, mentally unwell. No, let's just be honest. What would he say? He was a crazy, drug-addled sex fiend. That was, that was what he said on the stand about this person that he supposedly was in a relationship with. About this person that he was supposedly in a rom- romantic relationship with who was murdered. He said that shit on the stand? You would think that if he was in a romantic relationship with somebody who was murdered, even if he was being accused of the crime... You would think that he would be at least upset about it. Man did not shed a single tear. Completely stoic. In open court. Yeah. So he claims so many failings, so many failings. Yeah. So he claims that the power of attorney is completely legal and legit and that it had been given to him so that he could help Brian with his finances. Because get this. He says Brian was incapable of managing his own finances and that he would make dozens, if not hundreds, of excessive eBay purchases and that his Craigslist sex work bills were in excess of $500 a week. So many failings. Never mind that we know that from his eBay records that isn't true. He, he was not only buying but also selling objects and was managing that just fine. Cool story, bro. But Thompson also claimed that he was so bad with money, he'd be out of his payment mid-month and would then have to go resort to payday loans to make his ends meet. But the DA presented no information on this that I can find, so I don't know if they disproved it in court and said, like, well, his finances don't seem to say that. Right. 
I do, however, know that when he was killed, a forensic forensic accountant did a workup on his estate and found it to be worth over a million dollars, but that his checking account had only $15 in it. And this was the first week of the month, so no idea when his annuity came through or how that worked. Right. But that's what he claimed in trial. He said, you know, I was uh, I was doing all of this for him, but I find this to be... I find this to be complete bullshit because the fact is that if Brian had asked him to manage his finances, then why did Thompson need to steal the stuff and pawn it? If he was doing it for himself, he could have done it cleanly, right? As Brian's legal representative, he could have just gone and sold the things and said, well, I was doing this on his behalf, right? And also, if Brian wanted to, he could have turned his annuity into a single one-time cash payment. If he was if he was resorting to payday loans, which are predatory lending practices, why then wouldn't he have just flipped the entire annuity into something similar? Like if he's so bad with his finances that he can't balance his checkbook and can't I mean, who does that anymore, first of all? Right. If he couldn't if he couldn't manage his finances and couldn't pay his bills, right? Right. Exactly. Why, why would he have right. kept waiting for the payments? Why wouldn't he have tried to go to, there's all those companies that advertise, you know, like if you have an annuity or a settlement, right. we'll buy it. You know, they buy the, they, they take the payments instead and they give you a lump cash settlement basically. So if he was that bad with his finances, I would think that he would have done that or something similar. Um, Also, there was no evidence that I could find presented as to whether or not he actually did involve himself with payday lenders. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, and as you said, payday lenders. Yeah. Payday loans are a predatory industry. People that are living check to check and have something happen mostly that hurt they they more often than not hurt the people that are poor yeah people that are living check to check people who are disabled and can't work so like this has been and I know you're not done but this has been like a systematic failing of of systems the justice system all of then they all failed brian nobody listened to him nobody took care of that are meant to protect you sort of and so when he was presented with the will thompson said on the stand that it was all brian's idea uh, and that he had intentionally voided the will by forging christopher hurt's signature because he didn't want the money or the estate. He said he was perfectly yeah, wealthy on exactly. his own, well, and he didn't really care I'll about the money. So he claimed that he would have in that. So what he's saying is, is that Brian came to him and said, I want you to inherit everything. And he was like, nah, bro, I don't want that. And then Brian was insistent on it and, and brought Christopher Hurt and his mom over to witness the will, got Glenn Anderson to, to do the notarization, right? And that... When he got that, he he forged one of the signatures of the witness, which makes no fucking sense. If they're all there together in a room, how would you have forged the signature? So the only way I can see him saying it is like, 
Brian gave him the will that he had written. And then Tom, then Thompson took it to be notarized and witnessed. But the problem is Brian has to be there when it's notarized and witnessed. So how would Thompson have forged Christopher Hurt's signature? That doesn't seem like it could have happened, but that's what he claimed. He said he had purposefully, because, because what happened was the district attorney said this will is forged and they brought in a handwriting uh, specialist who looked at it and said, yeah, no, it's totally forged. These signatures aren't real. Right. At which point Thompson said, yeah, no, that was because I forged it. Yeah, absolutely. I forged it because I wanted Brian to think that I had taken his money, but in actuality, the will's not valid because I didn't want his money. So he says that he just did it to appease Brian and that it wouldn't have held up in court and he knew that because he didn't want the money, which is like, I'm sorry, what? I mean, like... I'm sorry, what? <laughs> when you're when you're driving by Yeah, that's another point. As crime scene investigators are investigating, asking, "Hey, have you found the will yet?" when you know full well that you put the will and the power of attorney out on the table. That's the point. Yeah, you 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 hit it on the head. I didn't even think of that. Like you can't you can't then go back and say yeah. I didn't want the money. You were so thirsty for that money. I'm sure. That you. Yeah. But you drove by multiple times and asked about the will. You didn't ask about. He could have argued, I suppose, that he was only trying to get the will because he knew it had been forged and he worried that they would try to accuse him of fraud or, or even just killing the guy to get his money. I mean, he could have. He could have said that. I don't know that he did, but that's a pretty lame excuse. Why were you why were you so interested in that will if if you knew it was forged and you knew it wouldn't hold up in court and you didn't care? Like it just seems right. Also, how would he have known that the will was on the table in plain view where it could be found? Right. And the other thing is that like if I had a loved one, especially like a spouse or a partner that was murdered shot three times house broken into i would be inconsolable yeah i might not be crying but i would be in shock and i mean even if even if you'd had a falling out or you know there'd been some abuse or whatever and you weren't getting along at the time you would still be bummed and you certainly wouldn't go on the stand and blame the victim right when when you're claiming that you're innocent, the only person who blames a victim is somebody who hurt that person. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, he also claimed that he would never have hired Lewis to to be the hitman because at the time they weren't friends. Um, he said they'd had a falling out and that the night of the murder, Lewis had come to Columbia and stolen his car to get back at him. How did he get there? If If he's driving home and... Your car. So not only did you set this whole thing up and you're blaming the victim and you've not only blamed the victim, but while he was alive 17 times. Also, who steals someone's car when they know that he runs a taxi company? That's not going to hurt him as bad as you think. Are you there? I can't hear you. And now you're blaming the person that you hired for $10,000, a gun and an old beat up car 
Oh. Calling Angela back. Hey. What happened? Are you still recording? Okay, good. Where did I lose you at? Hey. I have no idea. Well, I will leave it to you to, uh, to edit together. Yes, I am. Sounds good. I, w- I was just kind of recapping that he not only victim- blamed the victim on the stand in pretty harsh detail, but he also blamed the victim 17 times mm. previously. Mm-hmm. And he was victimizing Brian since he met him, essentially. Yeah, that's what it seems like. And then, and then he said that he would never. And now he's now, and now he's blaming the murder. Yeah, he said that. He said that Lewis had come and stolen his car to get back at him. And my question was, how did he get there? Right. How how did he get to your house if he doesn't have a car? If he's leaving in your car, your janky ass Pontiac. How did he get to your house? And he took the stand. What defense attorney would allow you I know to take the stand in a case where everything is stacked against you when two people have turned state's evidence? Yep. What? Yeah, no, his his defense attorney was pretty stupid too. Like he the way he talked about the case was just like, are you fucking kidding me right now? He I mean, it's like alternate reality talk. I mean, yeah. And I mean, everybody has to do their job, right? And his job was being a defense attorney, but saying stuff like, right, you know, supporting that kind of a defense of like, well, who knows who shot the guy? He was into all kinds of weird shit. And right. And it's like the other thing is the evidence is overwhelming, right? Like this guy did, Brian did everything in his power to get, including changing the freaking locks on his door. So, in what world well yeah yeah and i mean they had people from the alarm company testify that right during that remember that case where they found him stabbed in the head and they had come because of an alarm system call that they said was a faulty alarm system call due to a triggered circuit breaker. Except, and this always made me curious, right? When I was reading it, I'm, I said the same thing you did. My dateline brain came over me and I said, "Right, wait a minute. They come to his house for a false alarm call, but they find him stabbed in the head? I remember his friend said that Thompson had tried to shoot him but couldn't get up. So my thought is, if he was already Googling how to turn off alarm systems, maybe this was a first attempt. Oh, totally. That's the immediate thing that I thought when you said that. Yeah. So my my thought went, okay, maybe they tried to make that claim in court. And they did. They actually had the, the alarm system people come out and testify. Um, and I, I don't know. I, I don't understand how, how he could have claimed innocence at all right. in anything. I mean- Especially since he testified that he right 
he testified that he had forged a document. First of all, that's a crime. He also testified that he did take the items in question, but like didn't, as far as I know, didn't give a reason as to why. I assume he was claiming that he was selling them to shore up Brian's affairs, but yeah, I don't know about that. Did the money end up with Brian or did it end up in his bank? Unsurprisingly, the jury didn't buy it. And after six hours, he was convicted on January 16th, 2015 and later sentenced to life. Mm -hmm. Which is good. Good. So at Lewis's trial, the DA brought two friends and conspirators who claimed that as a Shawnee tribe member, Lewis had told them that after shooting Brian, he'd performed a Native American burial ritual over the... Took the car from Thompson, fled back to Oklahoma, depositing the murder weapon along the way, so he tossed it out the window. But he forgot the clip that was found in the car. They said that he'd been at the gun show on the day of his arrest to sell off the forty-four caliber revolver so that it couldn't be traced to him. And Lewis's attorney flatly disputed all of this and claimed that the entire case was based on hearsay, relying on the testimony of known liars. Yes, but why are they liars? Because of the crimes that they've admitted to doing that are connected to this one. All they lied about was saying, no, I didn't do it. Now they're telling you everything they did. They're telling the truth now. So why would they target some guy from Oklahoma? Right. This case has me confused, speechless, and you know I'm never speechless. Salted. We're, we're on our third block of salt. We have climbed the salt mountain, and we are on the third tier of the salt I know. I just threw out a lot of different metaphors. Confused? (laughs) Salted. Lightly salted. Roasted? No, not roasted. Not yet. There's a lot of salt. It's fine. It's cool. So Casey Lewis uh, was convicted on February 25th of 2015. And so this gets me. This gets me to laughing. So... Thompson appeals his conviction in 2019. Oh, does he now? Yes. The circuit court judge um, in his case was Christine Carpenter. And Thompson claimed, you know, that he hadn't had a fair trial because he'd had ineffective counsel. And he claimed that his publicly funded public defender had done a piss poor job of of taking care of his case. And he asked the judge to again have him declared indigent so that another public defender could come in and represent him for further appeals. Guess what the judge said? Judge said, no. Nope. Because she said that Thompson owned a trailer in Columbia, a house in Philadelphia, or excuse me, a house in Pennsylvania, several cars, multiple businesses, netting him a reported earning of ten dollars to $50,000 per month, and that at trial... He had not only described himself as wealthy, but had been described as generous with his wealth by his his character witnesses that he brought up. And his wealth was his primary means of defense. He said, I'm so wealthy, I didn't need the money that Brian was, that was, he was asking me to take. Right. I wouldn't have tried to steal it because I didn't need it. And the judge said, if that's your defense then you don't need a public defender because you can afford to pay for one yourself. Right. And she upheld his conviction and sent him back to prison. Right. I'm like, bro, you self-owned. What the hell were you thinking? I didn't need his money. 
I didn't, I forged the will specifically to get the will to be invalid. And I didn't need his money. Of course. But please, can you help me buy a better attorney? (laughs) (laughs) This guy, this guy was not in Mensa. (laughs) Way to bring it back to Mensa. Isn't there a thing in the, like, Miranda, right? Yes. That says, like, if you cannot afford an attorney, one will be provided for you. So how how did he get away with having a public defender? My guess is that he actually was financially hard up. Who wouldn't want $5 million, but also maybe he had a reason he needed it. So he owns a house in, in Pennsylvania, but he owns a trailer in Columbia. No shade to trailers, but they're not as expensive as houses. So I'm thinking, and he was driving, his own personal vehicle was a beat-up Pontiac. Pontiac was decommissioned a long-ass time ago. So if he's still driving a beat-up Pontiac in 2013... Yeah. So, of course, the, so everybody's convicted. Everybody goes away, including Mrs. Hurt, who laid the hurt on that cop that she slapped in the that face. never pass smog in California. Sorry. <laughs> Keep it in. In her victim impact statement, Brian's half-sister, Linda, uh, whose last name is freaking awesome, her name is Linda Van Bibbler, said that Mr. Thompson not only robbed my brother, first of his belongings, then of his life, he also robbed our family. Thompson didn't know my brother. He desired only what he could gain in terms of money and self-gratification. I made a really bad dad joke, and I'm keeping it in. I think that's, I think that his depression after his mom, like, really just isolated him from his family because Linda was a pretty awesome human being. She passed away recently, as far as I can tell. I did look her up to see if I could get in touch with her to learn this more about Brian, but it seems that she did pass away a couple of years ago. And by all accounts, she was a really amazing person, too. She was a, a person into art and healing and helping. And uh, I think his family all around is just nice, good, decent people. And so he must have just... So this is where... I... Where was his family? Brian's family. When all of this was going down, was he just being manipulated and isolated by this person? Well, and she said later on to the press that the blow of losing Brian was especially hard. Yeah. Because when she had been called as next of kin to claim Brian's body and make arrangements for his funeral, it was to find out that the state had turned his body over to the man who had murdered him and that Thompson had him cremated. Yeah, so they're investigating this motherfucker for his murder. And because he had that forged power of attorney, this was while they're investigating whether or not it's real, they turned the body over to his murderer. And here's the kicker. This is the thing that really pisses me off. I don't think he wanted to be cremated. This is a guy who was severely burned in a fire. What the fuck? That level of fucking disgusting irony that his murderer had him cremated is like, I can only imagine what his sister was feeling when she found that out. I don't understand why they would have called her and then turned the body over to this fucking asshole. 
Furious. Yes. Yeah. 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 So what have we learned from this case? A. Criminals stay stupid. B. Cops need to have way better disability and illness advocacy training. Um, and at the very least, yes. Totally. I mean... And um, also, we love Egyptian jewelry. Right. That makes me so fucking angry. Oh, man. Shit. I'm kind of mad I didn't buy anything from this guy. We've known that for a while, but this case just illustrates it in full colored pictures. He sounds rad. But let me tell you a little story. I had an eBay encounter that was quite funny, but feel, yes. So I, I was trying to buy, my dad uh, lives in a snowy place and he has arthritis in his hands because, you know, he's 70 fucking five years old. And he has to go out to his car in the snow and he was always complaining about how he'd get in, he would get into his car and his hands would hurt, is what he would tell me. And he'd have to sit there warming up his hands to get him to work before he could drive his car. So I thought, oh, cool. So I went on the internet trying to find him something I had tried out once before, which is these gloves that have heating elements in them. So they're like a heating pad. And so I was looking for that and I found a pair and I was like, great, I can order these. But then I thought, I wonder if they have the same thing for the body. Like, do they have like heated clothing? So I was trying to find him a heated jacket. I found this vest and it looked, it was puffy, kind of like a a vest you would wear if you were out hunting or something in the in the cold. Right. And um it said power vest and I was like, "Huh." And so I like looked through it and it was really confusing. So I messaged the guy and I said, "Hey, um does this come with the battery pack or do I have to order it separately?" He called me a stupid fucking asshole. Just said all this shit and I was like, "What the hell? What the fuck?" So I messaged him back. I'm like, bro, what the hell? I'm just trying to find out if it has a battery pack or not because I'm trying, I'm trying to see how it compares to this vest and that vest and, you know. And he, he messaged me back with a, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I thought you were trolling me and I always get trolling comments from people and da 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 And I'm like, how many trolling comments do you get? And why would you think that somebody asking whether or not this comes with a power pack, I don't. It made no sense, but I have a feeling that Brian would not have done me like that. (laughs) His eBay game was hot. Totally. Yeah, and from what I can tell, he was a layperson. I don't know if he had a degree in this or anything, but everybody spoke of him as if he was an expert. No, he would not have done you like that. He would have been kind and considerate and he would explain he probably had really good descriptions i don't know i don't know how ebay works but he would probably have really good descriptions. no he was obsessed with it as a kid was he selling this but he 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 honed his skill about it yeah right when he went to art school yeah, and I know that I think that hyperfixation is also a symptom of ADHD. So there, yeah, so it's very possible to. So potentially, that's where he fell in love with 
Egyptian. Yeah, hang on. Let me. Yeah, I don't know our social medias anymore. I keep forgetting them. Let me let me look it up. I wrote it down. Okay. So, what do you think of that case? I think wow. I personally, I feel like if people are going to commit crimes, they ought to do better. <laughs> or no, no, keep doing the same amount because apparently you suck at it. <laughs> yeah, my whole thing is like, I am not a criminal. I'm never going to commit a crime actually of the magnitude of murdering some someone. Except the crime of looking dope. <laughs> I look dope in... In hoodies and... Yeah, sure. Sometimes a crime. Looks so good, it's a crime. Well, thank you. Looks so good, it's a crime. Are you flirting with me now? Are you flirting with me? Crime of looking good. There you go. Being fabulous. No, I'm just saying. I'm just... I'm boosting your confidence. Thank you. My confidence needs a boost. (laughs) I just got back from my class reunion, and I have to say I looked younger than half the people there, at least. And uh, that was... Congratulations on your Irish-Germanic genes. It was a real pick-me-up. I was feeling pretty bummed. And then I looked around and went, yeah, no, I feel good. This is good. You even won a prize. I did. Most changed. (laughs) I'm not sure what they're trying to say. (laughs) Look, when you texted me and said that you won most changed... My question, which was a fair question, is did you become a dragon? Nobody was paying attention, apparently. Because, look, I didn't go to my class reunion. I think it's a pointless ritual for me personally. I went to a school with a class of like 100 people. And everyone that I know from high school, Mm. I'm in touch with to the level, to my comfort level. But I would hope Mm -hmm. that people from high school, as we approach becoming, you just turned 40, I'm about to turn 40. (laughs) As we enter our 40th year of being on this planet, I would hope that me at 19 when I graduated high school and me at 39 going into 40 is a different person. So. Right. And so it's kind of ironic. I'm thinking, okay, you're voting me most changed. So I understood the assignment. And what you're telling me is that you didn't. Right. Exactly. If you have not changed since high school, I have questions. It's time for Mensa. I I think I should become a member. Kidding. That's pointless. (laughs) It's time for Mensa. Way to bring it back around. But anyway, Brian Daniels. This case has everything. And it's really, like, I, I know that you touched on this, but it, I, I think it's really unfortunate that we weren't able to get in contact with family members. Yeah, I spoke to a couple members of the family, and they both right kind of didn't reply once I told them what we were doing. They asked about what we were up to, and I was like, we're going to cover it in the podcast. They all just kind of stopped contacting me. So if they're out there listening, I hope that they um, appreciated our coverage. One thing that I think it's really important to draw attention to is the failing of the police department to make any kind of significant change on behalf of Brian during that first altercation. And I understand that it kind of depends upon the victim's willingness to press charges, and I don't know if any charges were pressed, but the cops should have understood as soon as he 
presented receipts and was like, hey, this guy's been stealing from me. Really, a lot more should have been done. He should have, at the very least, been taken into custody, even if he said, he's my boyfriend, I'm taking care of him. You don't believe that guy, especially if the other guys, yeah, no, he's been stealing from me for years and I've got... Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing, right? And this is a big part of why we started this podcast. In a world, mental illness is is so rampant. Is that the word that I want to use? Prevalent. 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 Let's go with prevalent. Yeah. And we know how to treat it. To have someone who is consistently reporting... Stolen items, stolen big ticket items. And we know how to treat it. That are easily traceable if they're being sold for no investigation. Yeah, and they were found. No investigation whatsoever. For no investigation to be done and them to just take the word of this guy who's like, look, he's crazy. Yeah. He doesn't know what he's saying. 17 times? Mm-hmm. He's crazy and doesn't know what he's saying. And you can't take a look to see if the items that he's yeah. talking about are gone. You don't find them till after he's dead? Like, fucking search his house for crying out loud. Thanks. Thanks for that police work, Mr. Policeman. Yeah. I shouldn't assume his gender. Sorry. And it's like... <laughs> the policeman. Police person. Sure. Yes police person but that's the that's my main thing is like also don't take the gun to a gun sale (laughs) yeah don't do that i feel like this it should have been on an episode of cops cops doesn't exist anymore thank god no but yeah don't you think that the whole thing just sounds like a bad episode of cops like it sounds made up it sounds like it couldn't possibly have happened it's it's so hard because it wasn't even that long ago. I know. Right? It's not like this was the 80s, right? This is 2013. Mm-hmm. And you're taking the word of some random human who just claims to be his caretaker regardless. And we don't know... Because you weren't able to really have any communication with anyone who was family or whatever, we don't know if they were in a relationship, but we also don't know if they were in a relationship. That's coming right up. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, I digress. What were we talking about (laughs) before? Were we doing socials already? Damn. Yeah, I know. I know about it. Yeah. Socials. We were about to. If you want to get in touch with us about any cases that you can recommend or have a conversation with us about your thoughts on this case or whatever, you can contact us on theinvisiblespod at gmail.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter at invisiblespod. And we have an Instagram, theinvisiblespod. And we also have, I we believe, do. a Patreon. So, Yeah, we have a Facebook too, by the way. Just search it. We can't find it either. You... You keep referencing this Facebook page. However, none of us can get into it. I know. It exists. Yeah, it, but it's there. So if you else. go to our Facebook page and message us there, we won't know about it. So 
eventually. But anyway, yes. So Patreon. Let's talk Patreon and let's. We will eventually. I'll get there. Sorry, I have to do my words again. No, it's okay. So you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash the invisibles podcast. We also on Spotify, you can go and subscribe. So you can do like a listener feature. It's similar to Patreon in that. That's cool. It's like a tipping thing. Well, it's a monthly thing. So there's tiers that I did not come up with. It's just. It's like a tipping thing. It's just our podcast platforms tiering system, but it's a monthly thing. So you can essentially subscribe and pay a monthly thing. And then you will also get the bonus content that we put out. So you you can do it one of two ways. Oh, nice. We don't currently have any bonus content on the Patreon. We're working on it. We're working on it. And so if we can get 10 people at the pinch of salt level, which is our $3 level, then we will put out our first piece of bonus content and release it to the $3 tier. Excited about it. You guys, we're going to drunk true crime. We're going to drunk true crime the Pam Hup case, and we're going to talk about specifically her penchant for targeting disabled people. I don't, I don't like her. She's getting far too much attention. We're going to have fun with it because I'm going to go off. Buckle up. It's, it's a rough one. I don't like her either. Oh, yes. You, <laughs> you are performing an experiment. In our next case, we're going to be covering the Sagamahara massacre. Buckle up. Yes. It's going to be fun because I have an experiment to perform. Hopefully. But it is, just to be fair, it is a pretty rough case. Yes. And so we would encourage everyone to listen to it, but take care of yourself because it's rough. And don't worry, we will tell you that it's rough. Yes. Multiple times. Yes, definitely. Thanks. Yeah, it's harsh. Yeah, we'll give you another warning. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we hope to uh, have you at the next episode. That's, that's not what I mean. God, will you stop flirting? I'm not flirting. I'm exhausted. We're good. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next time. There. All right. Are we good? Okay, bye. It's been real. God. Bye, bye. Bye, bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Oh, God. Yeah. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. Anyway. All right. I'm going to stop recording.